Um, hi. Peter, your, your strange ideas from last night, they really got to me. Um, this morning I woke up and everything was weird. I, I walked out into the lobby of the conference and I looked down and everybody looked like they were chess pieces. I saw Professor Schasser was standing there and he was the king. And Henderson was zigzagging, going diagonals like a bishop. And there was a student who was stepping forward just like a pawn, and just as he was about to hit Professor Schesser, his wife swooped in to defend him just like a queen. And I kept thinking that, uh, that a knight was gonna teleport. Did you see any teleportation? No. No. Um, did you see anything where, like if two bodies would come together, one of them would disappear? No. Okay. All right. Well, thanks. Um, good night. Good night. Okay. Now you're ready to go. I think I'm ready. Great. Then let me welcome everybody to a brand new episode of Lucky Paper Radio. My name is Andy. I am here, as always, with my co-host, Anthony, a computer made out of meat and electricity Maddox. Yep, as opposed to the other Anthonys that are regular computers. Beep boop, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That just just reminds me of a Bunta Vista bit where they're talking about why it's important that the computer happens in meat. Uh, anyway, so welcome to Lucky Paper, a uh, Bunta Vista fan cast where we talk about weird shit that Theo said. <laughs> God, I love that man. Beautiful. No, this is not a podcast where we talk about weird stuff that Theo said. This is instead a podcast where we talk about Magic Anthony and mostly Cube. And this week we're returning to a past format for an episode we've done before where we looked at some of the least popular cards in our cube and talked about why we liked playing them or maybe justified their inclusion. I forget the episode number, but I'll put it in the show notes if you want to listen to that episode. People like this episode because I think the least popular, and in that episode we did it in terms of just the number of cubes the card is in. And so they could position that as like underrated cards in general because we were playing them, but so few other people were. This time we're doing it a little bit differently. We're still going to be looking at some of the cards in each of our primary cubes that are least popular, but instead of looking at the popularity in terms of the percentage of cubes on CubeCobra, we're instead looking at CubeCobra's Recommender, which is a machine learning robot built largely by Ryan Sachs that looks at similar cubes to your own and then basically shows you the delta in the format of a list of cards that are often in cubes like yours, yours does not include, and a list of cards from your own cube that are often not in cubes like yours, according to this robot. Woo, is it a new record for the earliest ever edit in an episode? Just popping in from the editing booth to say that we have two episodes that precede this episode that I think are relevant. The first one I mentioned, which is episode 55, it's called In Defense of Unpopular Cards. There's also another episode, episode 19, where we talk about the recommender in more detail. And I actually didn't remember that we spent a portion of that episode talking about cards that the recommender 
had suggested we cut or add for each of our main cubes. So a somewhat similar episode, but certainly at a different point in Anthony and my cube design journeys and with very different cards in the cubes that we're discussing. So check out both those previous episodes if you're interested in more of this type of discussion. Kisses. Do you ever use the recommender for anything, Anthony? I do not. So it's interesting to crack it open and take a look at what it says. I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with it. I think these are useful tools to a lot of people that are looking for particular sort of inspiration or maybe cards that they've missed. But, you know, there's just so many ways to process and look at a bunch of of cards that this isn't necessarily something that gives me what I'm looking for. I mean, I guess in a lot of other senses, I'm not just sitting down on a normal night just thinking like, what can I change here? I'm usually making changes in response to specific play experiences that have been good or bad, or, uh, you know, there's individual cards that I'm curious about. So I'm going to be driven by those other cards. The need that I have in my cube life is not more cards. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't even mean necessarily as a design tool. I actually... I think more often look at it for other cubes because I think it's an interesting way to highlight kind of the cards that stand out, maybe that are like abnormal in a cube list, which if you're looking at a cube list and seeing a lot of cards you recognize, I think it'd be very easy to fall into same old heuristics and think that you're drafting a similar kind of environment to cubes you know, but that might not be the case. And so I oftentimes will just look at the recommender tab for a cube I don't know and just see, okay, well, here are the cards that, you know, kind of in some ways define what makes this cube special relative to other cubes that include similar cards. That's an interesting point. I mean, it, it is a funny space where, you know, it's not just showing you these are the cards that are cubed most and it's going to recommend those to you because that wouldn't make any sense. Like everybody looking at the same list of top most cubed cards, it's first trying to figure out what are the cubes that are similar to yours and then within that sort of local region of space, what kinds of cards are different either that you're including or you're not including. Right. It's uh, not going to tell you to put Lightning Bolt in your Innistrad themed cube because even though Lightning Bolt is one of the most popular cube cards in general, the... I mean, we got to be careful not to personify computers here. I think it's so easy to do that. The, the system doesn't know anything. It's just an algorithm. But, yep, no meat. It doesn't but, know things because it doesn't have meat. But the, the system accounts for the fact that your cube belongs to a special set of cubes, right, uh, in spirit, and then basically says, well, most of the cubes that are in this space don't run lightning bolts. So even though it's really popular across the board, we're not going to recommend it here because we can detect by looking at similar cards that are included in these shared lists that this is actually an Innistrad-themed cube. Right, so looking at these lists kind of shows you a little bit of how this any individual cube differs from things that are kind of similar to it, which I think, as you're saying, is a really interesting way to get just a little bit of a perspective on a list you're not familiar with. Yeah, I think the context means a lot here, right? Like, if you take the recommended cuts and instead just make it, like, list of the most special cards in this cube, right, the most standout cards in this cube, that puts an entirely different spin on what that list means. Similarly, I look at the list of cards that it suggests I add to my cube, and it's a laundry list of things I never want in my cube, right? They're not cards I've never heard of. It's always cards that I have considered, tested, or made a very conscious reason to not play. And so that also says a lot about my cube. The fact that you can go in on that list of top 20 cards that it wants me to play and say, well, no, I'm not playing that. It's a nice summary document of the kinds of things I don't want in my cube, even though there are lots of cubes that are similar. Right. We're going to be talking about my Bun Magic Cube first. For those that are new listeners, this is my primary cube. It is very powerful, so it's got a lot of Magic's most powerful spells, your lightning bolts, your thought seizes, your sword supply shares, etc. It also has a very low curve, is very efficient, and doesn't have any what I deem to be unfair strategies or archetypes. So the decks are all competing on the tempo value axis. They're all some variation of aggro, bin rage, or control, or at least can be described as such. And you're all competing in the same for the same sort of abstract resources in every game. 
yeah, your cube is very similar, I think, to a lot of people, at least on first glance, to a lot of the cubes that are sort of classic and traditional and include a lot of the, yeah, I mean, like most iconic cards, I think is the best word for it. A lot of uh, people play cube because the they want somewhere to cast balance or they want somewhere to cast these powerful cards that don't really fit anywhere else per se. Exactly. And I think where it differs from a lot of those cubes that people figure out pretty quickly after a game or two is that it is very low curving and it doesn't necessarily have those like specific two card interactions and combos, things like Splinter Twin and Sneak Attack, stuff like that. Yeah. In the most recent draft where there were some new people involved, which was a couple Tuesdays ago, I think what I said was, it's a very powerful cube, but Disfigure is a very good card. I uh, think that's a great summary. Which I think yeah. is a good way to describe it. Like, there's going to be a lot of things with two toughness or less that you want to remove, and doing it for one mana is way different than doing it for two mana in this environment, because you're making a lot of decisions from early turns of the game, lots of cheap spells. I, I think someone else also described it as, like, uh, you know, your bomb turns in this cube come from casting three spells in a turn, not from spending seven mana on some, you know, big giant spell which I think is true of a lot of cubes. A lot of cubes like to have these big, splashy spells. I more and more have just cut them down and just leaned on. You can suit it something splashy, but you're going to have to put it together yourself with a combination of cards to make it happen. There's a more thorough description on Cube Cobra. Check the link in the show notes if you want to see the full cube list. We will also be providing, as we do for every episode, a list of all the cards mentioned throughout this episode. It's a visual spoiler in chronological order, so if you're not familiar with all the cards we're mentioning and you want to follow along, you can do that there. I think we will read the rules text quickly of the cards that we're actually talking about because we're only going over like 10-ish each, so that's not a ton of rules text. So we'll probably just mention that. So I got 10 cards here that I selected from the list of cards that the recommender suggests I cut from my cube. I skipped over stuff that was really new, right? A lot of people don't update their cube that quickly, and so a lot of stuff from the last set or two is in that list because people just haven't added it yet or it hasn't like sort of steeped its way through the entire Cube Cobra system. So I take something on that list that's from a much more recent set with a bigger grain of salt. That's probably just a little bit of noise or bias that uh, has resulted in that card being on the list. But anything older that is on that list is, uh, is what we're talking about here, basically. So first is a card I've mentioned a bunch before. I just want to talk about one more time because I'll take any opportunity to talk about how much I enjoy this card. And that's Dress Down. This is the one in a blue enchantment with Flash. It enters the battlefield, you draw a card, and it has the ability Creatures Lose All Abilities and at the beginning of the end step, Sacrifice Dress Down. This card reads weirdly because the way it has to work for the rules, it has to be this permanent with Flash with a static ability as opposed to like a one-time ability. But what it often does is just basically like counter and under the battlefield ability that a creature would have uh, if your cube has a bunch of creatures with powerful under the battlefield abilities. But it also has so many other things it can do in certain situations that make it a really dynamic, really interesting card to play with. So I don't have any of the like true combo stuff in my cube where you can't do like a dress down into a Phyrexian Dreadnought in this cube, but you can dress down to turn your Death Shadow into a 13-13 for a turn, or you can dress down to get your Croxa or Uro into play. You don't get the trigger for casting it, but you also don't get the trigger for having to sacrifice it, so you can just get it into play for cheap. It's just so much this card does. It, on the baseline, is quite good as an instant speed cantrip that really helps with Delirium. I have a lot of cards in my cube that care about Delirium. It's hard to get enchantments into the graveyard, generally. I've just found this card super fun to play with. Every time I draw it, it feels like a little puzzle. Like, how am I going to get the right kind of value out of this card, given what my opponent is doing? And solving that puzzle is really fun, and it also has this really decent floor. I mean, obviously, two-mana draw card instant speed is not great, but again, the Delirium payoff is nice, and it just kind of all comes together to make a nice package that never disappoints you and sometimes has a really high ceiling. Yeah, this is a really interesting, I think a great example of the kind of card that you're talking about that really shows how your cube is pretty different from a lot of the cubes that are similar, in that this is a card that 
you can sort of imagine the context where it's doing something really broken. It's much harder to evaluate here where it's often just more of a reactive spell and a reactive spell that's like difficult to evaluate because you don't necessarily right. know what your opponent was going to do. So it can be a really, really powerful card without being obviously powerful. And then it's also powerful in the sense that it has all that weird modality that just comes up and in, in different ways and in, in different contexts, depending on what else you draw with it. And I think all of that is the kind of gameplay you're looking for and isn't necessarily the kind of thing that would stand out to most people that are also interested in the kinds of powerful cards that you are including here. Yeah, and constructed this card is basically destroy all Urza Saga tokens or allow you to play a Phyrexian Dreadnought and not have to sacrifice your creatures for it, right? It's kind of a very narrow reactive card or a very potent like combo piece. And I do have Urza Saga in the cube, so that technically can come up. I don't think it has come up yet where you can actually use yeah, it to destroy the that. Urza Saga tokens. But it's that's not its primary purpose, right? Its primary purpose is like this kind of it almost feels like a little bit like a bounce spell to me. Like you're getting some like marginal value, plus it's replacing itself. It's almost like a remand in some ways, where like it's kind of not ever trading card for card, right? Like you end up card neutral no matter what. You know, you're getting the card back and you're also not removing anything of your opponents, short of Urza Saga token situations, which are rare. But instead you're getting some sort of onboard value which is hard to quantify and yeah, just really fun to play with. So yeah, this card is uh on my list of recommended cuts and I will not be cutting it anytime soon. So a sort of meta question about this is you've dug deeper into this list of recommended cuts than I was looking at for my own list. This is number 49 of the recommendations to cut. So I'm curious, and this is maybe just a technical question that you and I are not equipped to answer, but how much do you think it is important if something is high on this list that's like a stronger recommendation from the system versus something that, you know, your cube is only 360 cards, so it's like, yeah, there's, you know, a big chunk of it still below this that it would cut beforehand. Yeah, I went a little deep for this one. Uh, I also am kind of going somewhat in like reverse order in terms of the cards that it most wants me to cut that I'm most excited to keep. So this is almost like an honorable mention in some ways. I think more people are coming around to this card. I don't know. I mean, again, I don't ever look at this for concrete information, right? I use this as the same way that you use the Sword on Scryfall by EDH Rec. Sure. Rank, where it's like, this is an interesting lens to look at the cards in my cube through. Or it's, it, like, it's like, a sort order that has some meaning that is tied to something about the cards, whereas alphabetical has zero right. meaning right so it's just an interesting way when i'm looking at my cube or again more often somebody else's cube just to see like what are the cards that they include despite it being against the trend to do so and even though this is at 49 you know i still think it falls in as pretty solidly against the trend for a cube like mine my next one here is much higher in the list of recommended cuts and that's treetop village uh, i recently re-added this because i've had so much fun playing with it in the neoclassical cube and it's really impressed me there this is the Green, enter the battlefield, tapped creature land that for one and a green animates to become a 3-3 three, three with trample. 3-3 three, three is a very important stat line in this cube. There are so many things to get rid of two toughness creatures. And there's still plenty to get rid of three toughness creatures, but it's a steep drop-off in terms of the number of answers for two toughness creatures and three toughness creatures. And on top of that, a three toughness creature blocks quite well as well. And this is also one of the most efficient creature lands in terms of being able to animate it attack and also keep mana up for a reactive thing for casting another spell for doing something like that this card has just overall impressed me and it was cut long ago in my culling of all tap lands which there was a while there where i was just completely off any tap lands at all for my cube under any circumstances and i've come around in recent years to the idea that i think a deck should have one or two tap lands in it if the utility is worth it and so i have a small smattering of tap lands i've got Treetop Village, Colonnade, Sheldock Isle, a couple of the cycling duels, and then cards like Mystic Sanctuary, which are sometimes tapped, and the creature lands from Adventures of Forgotten Realms. But 
no triumphs, nothing like that. So I think as your first tap land in your deck, you can totally get away with the Treetop Village and the Surviving a Wrath, the, all the things that you get out of a creature land. I think this does the best of a lot of them because of how efficient it is. Yeah, if anything, I'm actually kind of just surprised to see it on this list because I think of this as a card that's in that category of really iconic cards that people want to play with, uh, but apparently oh, not. I don't think so. I, I think it's uh, fallen well out of favor if your goal is to just jam the most powerful magic cards ever with all the things like Triumphs and stuff, right? Like, honestly, that's a great it point, being yeah. in this list is an indication that I don't play Triumphs as it is an indication of you know wanting to play Treetop Village because I do think if you're on 10 Triumphs, Every additional tap land really right. needs to earn its keep, which I'm not. So I have a little more space for utility tap lands like this. Next up, we got Jewel Thief. This is two and a green for a 3-3 three, three Vigilance and Trample, and when it enters the battlefield, you make a treasure token. This is a lowly little... I think it's a common, right? Remember, this set symbol looked weird. Is that yeah, uncommon? It's a, common. it's a lowly oh, little common oh, from Streets of New Capenna. Really pushed for a common, and I think, if anything... Somebody mentioned in a recent draft that they thought this card was cool in this cube just because it showed off that this card was good enough for this cube, right? They were like, it's just cool that this card is good enough here, and it totally is. I'm not in love with this card, nowhere near as in love with it as I am with Dress Down or Treetop Village, but uh, I did want to mention it because I recently did a little bit of a search to add some more Trample to my green section, which is actually the same time I added Treetop Village. And I was like, what's a good three drop I can hit with Collected Company that has Trample and doesn't have some aspect of it that really rubs against my design goals. And in all of Magic's history, this is by far the best fit. <laughs> Jewel Thief is just the best one in terms of a collective company hit trample green threat that fits my design goals that I wasn't already running. So, Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an interesting card, and it does so much more than it looks like it does. Vigilance and Trample is just a really potent combination of, of effects, especially when there are just like a lot of aggressive decks. So being able to attack and also defend at the same time is yeah. really, really relevant here. And the fact that it also then gives you that treasure, which has so much flexibility on how you sequence the next couple turns. It's kind of a two drop. It's, uh, yeah, it's, you could or, think of it as a two mana, three, three Vigilance Trample, but it actually kind of does more than that, except for the fact that you can't just cast it on turn two. Right, yeah. You obviously can't cast it on just two mana, but if you're multi-spelling, it's effectively two mana because you use that treasure right away. Or it just ramps you next turn, right? Like, you know, you go turn one Dork, turn two Jewel Thief, turn three... You've got your three lands, your dork, and your treasure. You've got five mana, plus you've put a 3-3 three, three with Trample of Vigilance into play. So on top of the mana fixing treasure gives you, yeah, it's just, I think it's a really effective little card that admittedly doesn't have a lot of charm for me, but it does the job and does the job well. These next two are kind of a little package here. Uh, first up is Mutagenic Growth. This is the Phyrexian mana pump spell. It's uh, green Phyrexian mana for an instant. Target creature gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. Realistically, in this cube, I think 90% of the time you're paying two life for that instead of the actual green mana. Kind of like you get Taxian Probe, you're almost always paying the two life instead of the blue mana. This is a recent ad, and I haven't actually seen it do its thing yet. I think thus far, the players in our playgroup don't really know what to do with it because it feels so out of place as its high ranking on this recommended cuts list would indicate. I mean, this is not an environment where you expect to see combat tricks, which is, I think, in line with a lot of cubes that have similar goals and similar cards in them. Yeah, you say that. I do have Embercleave and Rimrock Knight and lots of instant speed removal, which can very often be combat tricks. It makes double blocks really tricky. So there's a lot of things to interact in combat at instant speed. So I don't think it's weird for that reason. I think it's just weird because, I mean, honestly, my least favorite thing about it is that it looks like a green card, but I think green decks are the decks that least want it. I think this is a card for essentially a like turbo aggro prowess deck where it can both be 
effectively a burn spell to face, right, for a lot of damage in the late game. If you get two prowess triggers off it because you have two prowess creatures in play, plus you get the extra two damage, and you do that all for no mana and instant speed that's really powerful, I think its main job here is just to effectively counter lots of toughness-based removal, right? Right. Small burn that spells. figure that you mentioned at the top. Small burn spells, the disfigures, the down ticks from red and six, like all these things that really define this environment. I have so, so, so many small ball removal spells that this, I think, being a like really good protection spell against those decks, that it also in like the Turbo Prowess deck is just an extremely potent, proactive card. I also do have a lot of spells matter stuff, like things that trigger off of casting spells, and there's a lot to be said for being able to cast this for no mana. So on turn two, you can just play your Young Pyromancer, knowing you're guaranteed to get an elemental out of it if you have your Mutagenic Growth in hand. Not to mention the Mutagenic Growth is very likely to save the Young Pyromancer for whatever movie your opponent points at it anyway. Paired with that a little bit is uh, is Repeal. Repeal is a classic that I think used to be beloved in vintage cube environments and that I think has fallen out of favor because it's been crept out on power level. This is X and blue for an instant to return target non-land permanent with converted mana cost X or less to its owner's hand. I'm sorry, I just noticed right now. Converted mana cost X, so you can't pay more. I'm not sure why you ever would, but it's not X or less. Weird. And then you draw a card. So the ceiling of this card is... Destroy their token, their big token, and draw a card for a single blue mana, right? If you're bouncing a permanent that costs zero mana value, it's just a blue to draw a card and destroy the thing. There's enough tokens running around my cube that that's very relevant here. There's a couple other things about this that make this very interesting, I think, and better than other bounce spells, or at least better for my design goals. One is that you can bounce non-land permanents, not just creatures. One thing that came up in a recent roto draft of my cube is that I think a lot of the more reactive players really felt the squeeze of ways to deal with non-creature permanents that were irrelevant. And there's not a ton of them floating around, but they are there, right? There's probably a couple dozen non-creature permanents that you really care about being able to answer. And once you've exhausted all of the Abrupt Decays and March of Otherworldly Lights and whatnot, uh, a card like Repeal for blue decks I think is really good because it does allow you to bounce that Sylvan Library or bounce that smuggler's copter before they have a chance to crew it or you know whatever get that non-creature permanent out of there and then counter it on the way back down if you really need to or just buy time i mentioned this is similar to the mutagenic growth though because i also really like this in the turbo prowess deck alongside the zero mana baubles i have both mitra's bauble and urza's bauble and this in combination with those cards just basically says pay a blue mana draw a card and put that zero mana spell back in your hand so you're effectively drawing two more spells for one blue mana and one of them is guaranteed to be a zero mana spell. So, you know, you can just have your Monastery Swiss Spear in play, play your bauble for zero mana, pay a blue mana, put it back in your hand, play the bauble again, and you've drawn a card and cast three spells for one blue mana. A lot of prowess triggers there. A lot of, a lot of stuff going on. It's obviously even better with Dragon's Rage Channeler. The baubles are also just great with things like Ledger Shredder and Clarion Spirit, all the things that care about casting two spells a turn. So I actually don't think this is like super powerful here, but I really like the way that it works. I like having more interaction for non-creature permanents in blue. And I think it's kind of got a, like almost like a dress down-esque vibe where it's oftentimes not going to get you like a full card's worth of value, but it replaces itself and you get to kind of find a, a way to use it that feels like it's useful. Yeah, this is a weird card to me in terms of the context where I think it just is really difficult to evaluate because... I feel like a kind of card that a lot of people would love to see is just like unsummon draw card, which, you know, we have at three mana, uh, right. but that's not really going to cut it in, in a lot of contexts. At one mana, I think that would be quite good in this cube. And oh, yeah. how often is repeal like one or two mana bounce draw card? Like not that 
rarely there there are just like a lot of no, things I mean, and increasingly i think more and more magic cards make a lot of tokens which are you know the, the way that the cards are impactful and this is just one mana bounce a token draw a card i have definitely repealed a treasure token and drawn a card and felt great about it it's like all right i mean now you don't have your extra mana for next turn Bolt the i rock. cantripped anyway like it may feel like it's not that impactful but i think it definitely can be in the right circumstance i, I get what you're saying though right like my cube is very low curving. I have tons of one and two drops. So you'd think, okay, repeal's better than it would be because you can bounce almost anything in the cube for, you know, a total of two or three mana mm -hmm. overall. But that also means that the environment is so efficient that you're always paying one more mana to answer the thing than they played to cast it. Not always. I mean, if they play a Stone Coil Serpent or whatever, you can repeal it for X equals zero, even though they put some amount of mana into it. But for the most part, you're paying one more mana than your opponent played to, to cast the thing. And when that one more mana is double the mana they paid to cast it, right? If you're bouncing their one drop for two mana, that's a lot worse for you than bouncing their four drop for five mana, right? Because then there's only like a 20% difference in the mana spent to cast the thing, if that makes any sense. Like, it's kind of counterintuitive that as the curve gets lower, this card does not necessarily get better because now you're playing in a more efficient environment and the, its lack of efficiency in terms of mana becomes a bigger liability. Sure. I mean, I guess the difference there is, to me, it feels like it's not a dead card. Uh, whereas in some contexts, if somebody's, you know, ramping out a six drop is sort of the typical thing sure. you're going to see in a game. It's just like, this is just not a card you can use at all. Uh, or you're, it's so mana efficient, it's just not going to be a relevant interaction. Whereas here, especially, you know, when you have stuff like Remnant Rock Knight and uh, Mutagenic Growth and uh, you're going to equip your Jitte, things like that, there are just a lot of moments where you do actually get to trade up in terms of mana and resources with it. Yeah. So I've had fun playing with it, and uh, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. And for those of you that maybe haven't given it a second look since you cut it five years ago, I don't know, maybe your cube's changed a bit and it's time for it to come back around. Next up is a card that also came out of the recent rotor draft of this cube. Another place where players felt the squeeze was in graveyard interaction. I have a fair amount of graveyard interaction in the cube. I've got all the lion sashes and scavenging oozes and whatnot. But I don't like having really dedicated grave hate, right? Like things that are just like Tormod's Crypt Exile Graveyard completely or, you know, I think Unlicensed Hearse is a somewhat popular card people have been playing. To me, that just hates on graveyards a little too hard. I like the more sort of incremental hate. And so I've added Scrabbling Claws, which I think from a play pattern perspective is still to this day my favorite little graveyard hate trinket. It's one mana for an artifact. You can tap it to make a player exile a card of their choice from the graveyard, or you can pay one and sacrifice it to exile a card from a graveyard of your choice and draw a card. You can get it with Urza Saga. You can recur it with Luris. It's also just a colorless sideboard card that if your opponent has a really relevant graveyard strategy, it doesn't matter what you're doing, you can always bring this card in. I hope people main deck this card in regular drafts. So far, I haven't seen it happen as much, but coming out of the Roto, everyone, like a lot of people were like, I would have happily main decked a Scrabbling Claws. And I think Rotos are an interesting way to, we should maybe mention, I mean, a Roto draft is a, is a face-up draft format where you essentially draft a cube one pick at a time with all eight players seeing what everyone else is picking in real time. So you get to see the draft as it develops, you get to see what all your opponents are doing and draft your deck accordingly. I think oftentimes that draft format exposes things about your cube that are otherwise very easy to miss in a regular draft. And in this case, it's very easy to look around and say, well, three of my seven opponents have a really potent graveyard card in their deck. And so this scrabbling clause is actually very valuable to me. Whereas if you're in a regular draft and you're looking at just your deck and thinking about just what your deck does and what synergies it has, you often are like, well, this is a cyborg card. I'm not going to want to play this. This came up in the last draft I did of the Bun Magic Cube. I told you at the end of my three rounds, uh, you were like watching and seeing how the matches were shaking out. I had brought in Clinging to Dust in every single match. Mm -hmm. I was playing this 
Jund value deck, and I was like, is Clicking to Dust really better than like another removal spell or another two drop or something? And at the end of the day, I cited it in every matchup, but I think in hindsight, it should have just been there all the time. It's the kind of card that's very easy to look at and be like, ah, oh, I don't need this. Then you got one opponent that's got Uro. You got one opponent that's got a bunch of Devil Spells. You got one opponent that cares about Delirium. You got one opponent that has a Grim Lava Mancer. And you're, all of a sudden, you're like, it'd be really great to just <laughs> be able to chew up that graveyard a little bit as I'm doing my thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really easy to sort of get in this headspace of like, this card isn't going to be relevant in every matchup, therefore it is a sideboard card. And a thing that that experience, or especially the, the rotisserie draft of seeing everyone's decks in public first, really highlight that having it be not relevant in every single matchup doesn't mean it is a sideboard card. It could also be, you know, this is relevant 70% of the time, therefore I'm, it out. Still gonna, it I'm still going to put it in my main deck. And in the, if the drawback is spend one or two mana and draw a different card... It's like to- it's right. not it's it's impact is going to be better for the seventy percent of matches that it's going to be relevant in uh, in the main board for you know one more game out of three potentially. And we talked about Dressdown's virtue of fueling delirium, right? Like this is also a two mana cantrip that puts an artifact in the graveyard with a little bit of upside, right? So it's not that far off from what Dressdown is doing at least superficially. So even though I think it reads like a sideboard card, I think it should be main decked more often than not, and also. It's not hard to find some synergies with it, right? Like, I mentioned Luris and Urza Saga, which I think are the premier ones, but a fair amount of my spell trigger stuff cares about any non-creature spell being cast. This is a non-creature spell that just replaces itself for two mana total, which can be nice. And then the Delirium stuff, you know, still matters too, regardless of whether you have other graveyard things going on. So, so Scrabbling Claws. Uh, We'll see how long it sticks around, but I understand where this one's on the list and why a lot of people might look at it and think this is not a particularly fun card. My cube's about playing fun cards, but... I think it does really fit here. I should say, too, I don't have any reanimator or, like, really, really dedicated graveyard stuff. I mean, the closest thing is, like, Uro or Croxa, which, you know, really need the graveyard to function. But for the most part, it's not a, like, combo cube. You're not disrupting a combo with Scrabbling Claws. You are just getting some value as the game goes on. And uh, that's why I like this design so much specifically, because you can draw in the late game, and it's still a silver bullet for whatever thing you need. Or in the early game, you just play it on turn one, and you just basically say you never get to have a graveyard. It's going to be much harder for you to build right, up yeah. to delving something away or to get Delirium ever, because I'm just going to you know make you exile card every single turn. Next up, we got Exploration. It's green for an enchantment. You may play an additional land on each of your turns. This is one I've kind of wanted to include for a while, and I've recently added and been very pleasantly surprised by. I have a lot of one-mana mana dorks, as a lot of powerful cubes do, because accelerating your mana on turn one is very powerful, right? Getting ahead by one mana is more relevant earlier in the game, because it's a larger fraction of all the mana available to both players. So that's why one-mana dorks are so valued, uh, especially compared to two- or three-mana ramp. Exploration is not, strictly speaking, ramp, because it requires you to have additional lands in hand to actually make it ramp, right? You can't just play this on turn. It's not even worth mana in and of itself, right? Like, you're going down a mana source in hand, whereas, like, a mana dork is a mana source you can play early. A land is a mana source you can play one a turn of. This is neither of those, right? But in exchange for playing this card, you get the opportunity to play multiple lands per turn. I think of this as a build-around, and it's a build-around that requires you to either be drawing a decent number of cards, or, more often in this cube, I think playing cards off the top of your deck with something like an Augur of Autumn or a Corsair of Crufix... And the best way, I think, to draw a lot of cards with this is with Life from Alone. I think pairing this with a couple fetch lands and Life from Alone means that you get to just really accelerate and develop your mana in a very consistent way and in a way that's hard for your opponent to interact with. I put this in really because I just wanted to have some diversity of ramp in big air quotes effects. And, you know, the fifth or whatever, the fifth or sixth one mana mana dork, 
I don't think it's adding a whole lot to the environment. Whereas exploration has the possibility of playing a similar-ish role, right? Like, it still can accelerate you to three mana if you do have three lands in hand and you play it on turn one, right? You can get to three or four mana on turn two and, and play something ahead of schedule. You're down a card for doing it, which is a real cost, but it can still play that role. Or it can be this, like, cool build around that makes a whole different kind of deck viable. And so far, players have reported that they have enjoyed playing with it and that it's been quite powerful, which I'm actually a little surprised to hear. I kind of thought it would feel like a trap to people when they started playing with it because I think people think it's like generically good, but it's really not. You need the right kind of deck for this to be good. Yeah, I think that's exactly why we don't see it in a lot of similar cubes because it is a card that looks extremely powerful and in the right context, it is very powerful. But I think it's also very easy to then sort of get to that next level of understanding of it of like, well, sure, I'm getting to accelerate my mana in a kind of ridiculous way, but it's not actually generating cards. So once I play out my three lands, sure, I had an extra mana on turn two, but then by turns three and four and five, I haven't drawn more lands, so it it's hasn't really a helped basically a lotus me. petal, right? Yeah. And then I think there is that level three of understanding of, well, if I do pair it with a lot of card draw and ways to play lands off the top of my library and stuff like that, it becomes powerful again. But people maybe aren't interested in sort of that level of, of gameplay. Which I think so far, at least in our playgroup, people actually are and have found that they are interested in making that happen and playing the cards that make this card valuable and different from other kinds of ramps. So, but having fun with that one, and I think that one does stay like most of these cards. I think it's pretty clear why they stand out, and exploration is no no exception. Like it doesn't really feel to me naturally at home in a fair, highly efficient cube. But I think it's got just the right amount of like build around flair and potential value that uh, I'm interested in keeping it. Here's a polarizing one, Anthony. Oh. A few months ago, I added Terminus to my cube. Four white-white for a sorcery to put all creatures in the bottom of their owner's libraries, which is quite a bad card, except it has Miracle for just a single white mana. Everyone's favorite mechanic. So if this is the first card you draw for turn, in any turn, you can, as you draw it, pay a white mana and cast it and essentially get a one mana Wrath. And because it cares about being the first card you draw on the turn, that means you can also do it at instant speed in your opponent's turn if you have a way to draw a card. And that happens to be the top card of your library. On paper, I don't like Miracle. And if I was into customizing cards, and if the rules would allow for this to be written in a reasonable way, I would love for this to say, Miracle, but only if you called it. Only if you set it up, right? Only if you earned it with a Brainstorm or a Sensei's Divining Top. What I don't like is the, oops, it was just there. I didn't do any cantripping or top of the library manipulation, but I happened to get the miracle cost. Like, I don't love that. So you don't like fun or exciting moments or the the idea of, like, maybe I'll draw my one out that'll save me here. It can still be the one out that'll save you. It just has to be... I just think that the way this card is costed, uh, it has potential for feel-bads if your opponent just free rolls it at a time when... They did no work to set it up and just get really lucky. Okay, so what if I do call it? What if every time I'm in a bad situation, I'm just like, that's going to be Terminus. <laughs> that, that, that's that's exa- going to be Terminus. That's exactly why I'm saying that uh, the rules have to be complicated. The rules have to be like, you get an emblem at the beginning of the game that says, like, if you would draw a card for the first card in, in your turn, you may instead say, that's going to be Terminus. And <laughs> if it's not, you lose the game. <laughs> but if it is, then you get to cast it for one white mana. Okay, so you're There's, talking. You're even talking in that more... situation, it's still correct if you're going to lose the game anyway to just like you know shoot your shot. That's an interesting point. You basically can't write the rule in a way that it makes any sense, which is why it's not written that way. Of course, it's less of a miracle and more of a intervention. 
In my cube, there are tons of ways to set this up on top of your library. Tons and tons and tons. I have so many cantrips that do scrying. I have your sensei's divining tops. I have your sylvan libraries. I've got a lot of ways to actually time this and draw it when you want it to actually trigger the miracle cost. And when you jump through that hoop, I love this card. I think it's great. I think it's a payoff that is worth all the work you did. This is an environment where I have balance, which is a two mana wrath. So a one mana wrath is not like completely out of left field. Toxic Deluge is a three mana wrath, which, you know, obviously we're starting to get further and further up the curve, but the idea of a spell affecting multiple creatures in play at less than four mana is pretty common here. It's not like that's totally wild. And again, like if you're setting it up, you're usually paying another mana at least to set it up in the turn. So I don't think it's like broken when you get to set it up and, and play it. Also, for the most part, the times I have seen people just hit it for free off the top of their library, usually it's like, I guess I'll cast that here, but it's actually not a great moment to. It's like, okay, well, it's turn two. They played a mana dork. I was not going to do anything with my mana anyway this turn, so I guess I'll turn this Terminus into a, like, unexpectedly absent for 40, right? Just put put that card on the bottom of their library. And there, both players are kind of like, shrug, okay, I guess that happens, right? Like, <laughs> This isn't the miracle I ordered. Right, like, no one, no one feels super bad about that. There's been exactly one time, at least I've heard of, that somebody just got it, didn't set it up, and it was, like, really potent in the game that it was in. It was really powerful in that particular game state. So I put this in because I wanted Control to get a little bit of juice. I felt like Control was struggling a little bit, specifically blue-white Control, and I wanted a little juice for it. And this has delivered exactly what I wanted. Uh, I've played with this card, I've played against this card, and it's terrifying. And I think it's exactly what the Control decks ordered. I do have Mystic Sanctuary in this cube, so... After you play the first Terminus, the next Terminus can come off of any blue fetch. If you have Mystic Sanctuary in your deck and at least three islands in play, uh, then you just get to put that on top and Wrath again whenever you need it. That's really powerful. And I think it's given this like exciting edge to the control decks that I'm actually really happy with. So not at all surprising when people don't include this card. Miracle, I think a widely reviled mechanic from a game design perspective because it's very, it, it like leans into the variants of magic in a way that a lot of players are often trying to lean away from but i think here the times it's going to be a feel bad because your opponent just lucks into it versus the times that they worked for it or i've just seen a cast for six too and it's fine right like as a modal card that says either you set me up and you get some really efficient effect or you don't set me up but you still have another wrath in your deck at an inefficient mana cost sometimes that matters too i've been pretty happy with the card so far this is really, really funny to me because I, I think that the design of this mechanic was very much about trying to capture this sort of, uh, you know, sudden moments of the human uprising. I don't get it. Uh, these sort of sudden moments where the humans beat back the monsters and there's this intervention from some external force. Oh, I don't think it's meant to be. I think it's literally meant to be like a meta. It's a miracle that you drew this card in this moment. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what I mean. Are we saying different things? Well, you're saying like in the fiction of the game. Yeah. To me, the name of the mechanic feels like it's a breaking the fourth wall situation where it's like, it's a miracle that you drew this card right now. Not, it's a miracle that the humans did it. A- well, yeah, it's a miracle for the good guys that, that oh, suddenly they're winning. Well, what about Bonfire the Damned, it's Anthony? It's still a miracle for the, for the, okay, for the good mind. guys? That one was a bad guys. Whatever. <laughs> it was, it felt like a mistake that things like Brainstorm and Sensei's Divining Top let you set up Miracle, and it kind of made the mechanic function in constructed formats the way it wasn't really designed to work. Because it wasn't really about Miracle, it was about control. It was about, like, forcing the Miracle to happen. Interesting. And now you're kind of saying, that's actually the gameplay that you're interested in. You don't care about the exciting moments of something suddenly happening that wasn't supposed to. You just care about 
it being a synergistic card that specifically works with Senses Dividing Top and Brainstorm and effects like that. Oh, I which, love it with Porton. You set it with Porton and you draw it on your opponent's turn. And then you're that's just like, pretty cool. Boop, boop, boop. That's, that's pretty cool. And I think that that is kind of highlights what I think is so interesting about cubes where if you just put this in Constructed, maybe it's like, yeah, you have four of, of each of these cards in your deck and you can just get away with, you know, doing something totally ridiculous all the time. But you have things in a proportion here where the gameplay feels reasonable to have that. So far, yeah. So far. This is, uh, I've got a little list of cards that I'm worried people are going to complain to me about after KubeCon, and this is on that list. I think somebody at KubeCon, over the course of all the many drafts that will happen, is going to get utterly <laughs> wrecked by this card, yeah. and uh, I'm going to hear about it, which is fine. But I'm, look, I'm, magic is, is zero-sum fun, think right? Think of how so, happy so your opponent Think is. about the person that is not coming up to you that was just delighted. <laughs> uh, you know that it has to be there. Everything is always in balance. Yeah. So yeah, this card has been really fun, I think, for me at least. We'll see as time goes on how the tallies pile up in the you earned it, build around synergy column versus the oops, I guess you have no board anymore column. All right, two left. Got to pick up the pace a little bit. I also recently added Spellstarter Sprite. One in a blue for a 1-1 with flash and flying. It's a fairy wizard. When Spellstarter Sprite enters the battlefield, counter target spell with converted mana cost X mana value X, where X is the number of fairies you control. I've got a decent number of fairies running around this cube, and as we talked about with Sam Black, I loved the modern blue-black fairies list, which was basically built around the engine of Bitter Blossom and Spellstutter Sprite, and Quickling to a little bit of a lesser degree. But Spellstutter Sprite plus Bitter Blossom was a really powerful engine where you basically had Bitter Blossom churning out a bunch of tokens, and then your Spellstutter Sprite was just scaling with the game and could always counter anything for two mana and also leave behind a body. In this cube, I think I did the numbers, and there's like over 100 spells that are one mana value or less. So if you don't have another fairy in your deck, there's still a ton of things you can just counter with Spell Starter Sprite, which is great. Uh, we love that for us. But there's also, again, just a fair number of incidental fairies. I do have Bitter Blossom, I do have Fairy Mastermind, I do have Fairy Vandal and Brazen Borrower and Vidillion Click, and maybe some more I'm forgetting, Fairy Godmother, but that one doesn't really come up that much. So it gives you this like little pocket of like type matters synergy which uh, i think is very rewarding and i also just love the kind of tempo deck that it goes in i think this helps push people along with new cards like orcish bowmasters into a low to the ground deck that plays at instant speed and but isn't like a control deck right you're still developing your board but you're developing your board while you're selectively deciding to answer your opponent's threats or you're doing both in the case of spell starter sprite you get a board presence and also you get to answer one of your opponent's cards it's also got this beautiful art and uh, yeah, like I said, I really was into that deck in Modern, so uh, this card has been surprisingly good, I think. I mean, I was expecting it to be one of the worst blue cards in my cube, frankly, but counter spells are good, and I think people have found this to be pretty effective, even with only a couple other fairies in their deck, because of just how low the curve is in this environment. Do you think this card would be more appealing to people if it just said counter-target spell with convert mana cost one or less? I think, yes. I think people would evaluate it more easily if, if that was what it said. It's kind of funny to hear you say that you enjoy that tribal synergy, because I feel like we've had similar conversations in the past where you've been not interested in that, but maybe we just haven't talked about fairies, and maybe that's just your favorite tribe. Well, it's really it's really nuanced, I think, right? It's like, sometimes the type stuff really doesn't interest me, because it feels like a random payoff, right? Like, it feels like... Come this but that's kind of what you're saying here, Right, well, it's coming this exact same card from the other angle, right? You could say, like okay, uh, this is a two-drop 1-1 one, one flyer that counters a one-drop spell, or sometimes you randomly get rewarded and you happen to have also combined with Bitter Blossom and you can counter whatever spell you want. I think 
all those knobs are really important in terms of how I feel about the card. How good it is on the floor, if you don't get any of the combinations. How good it is on the ceiling. Like, this card gets better, but it doesn't get massively better, right? It's not like it goes from good card to blowout, right? It's never really a blowout. It's still a very, like, incremental kind of one-for-one sort of card. Well, it's literally a two-for-one, so I guess it's two-for-one kind of card. I think all those things kind of end up mattering, right? I'm trying to remember some of the type stuff that I have... Because I, I do remember, somebody's definitely rubbed me the wrong way in the past. I'm not sure I remember what those cards specifically were that bugged me. I can't think of them off the top of my head. But I think usually it's a case where, like, if you do have that extra synergy, it, like, gets such a big bump up that it feels like it's almost a different card now in a way that sometimes makes me feel like you get too randomly rewarded. Sure. I mean, I think it's also something that I dislike when it's just a situation like this where the card might just be fine with no tribal synergies, but it just confuses people because they're looking for those. And that could just make cards that people don't end up playing or there's just like a lot more cognitive load to try and understand cards like that. Yeah, so far people have been playing it more than I expected. I expected to see in people's sideboards, but I think people are excited to put it in the main deck and it's been fun for me. So, all right, this brings us to the last, my, my 10th card that is on the list of recommended cuts that uh, I'm really excited about. This is a card I have dabbled with adding for years. I have just like flirted with this card. I have ordered one and looked at it for a while and thought about putting it in the cube. I finally just did it. And in the very first draft, I was sold on this card for the long haul, and that's Barbarian Ring. This is a land that taps for red and deals one damage to you, comes into play untapped, and it has Threshold, pay a red, tap, and sacrifice it to deal two damage to any target. This card is beautiful to me. I love life as a resource. I love presenting my players with the choice to turn their life into something else. In this case, you're paying a little bit of life to turn a mountain into a shock later on, right? Which is... Or a big turn upgrade. A nothing into a mountain. Turn a nothing in. What? What's the nothing? A land that has no tap for mana ability. You would never have that in your deck, though. I'm talking about the like. You're paying the life for the privilege of that card being a mountain, as opposed to nothing. Correct. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> that doesn't. What you're saying doesn't make sense to me. I was, I mean, was going to say waste, but waste do more than that. I understand what's, what's what you're saying, that... but I'm trying to compare it to like. Your deck would be this without uh-huh. Barbarian Ring, and now it is this with it. But your deck would never be a deck with a card that had a that just land with land. nothing on it. Yeah, you probably not. <laughs> anyway, in this environment, it is trivially easy to turn on Threshold, at least relative to other singleton draft environments. Because I do break singleton for fetch lands. I have so many one mana cantrips and cheap removal spells that stuff just hits the graveyard really, really quickly. And that plus the combination of things like Ren and Six, which lets you rebuy this land and turn it into a little value engine. Um, oh, that's kind of cool. It's really cool. I played this in a like blue-red aggressive tempo deck, and in the first draft, I killed Planeswalkers with it, I killed Creatures with it, I killed Players with it. It was just everything I wanted this card to be. And I had it in a deck that, like, you can definitely draft a deck in this cube where you don't care at all about your fourth land. You just never really want your fourth land. And your third land is, like, on the cusp, right? I had a very specific moment in that draft, I remember, where on turn two, I played and cracked a Horizon Land. The Is It Horizon Land? Which, normally, you'd think you would never do that so early. I had other lands in my hand. I just played it because I had a, one more land that I wanted to, and that would allow me to hold up a counterspell that turn if I wanted to counter something. I didn't end up wanting to counter something, so instead I just sacrificed it to draw a card because... Being down a land just didn't matter in that deck. I could cast everything in my hand for two mana anyway, so it wasn't like I was going down a resource. I just wanted more action immediately. In those kinds of decks, Barbarian Ring is amazing because you oftentimes don't even tap it for mana if you have a couple extra lands floating around, or you can get a threshold really quickly and just have another shock, but it's a shock that helped get you to the point in the game where you could actually take advantage of it. 
can't counterspell it, which is relevant. It comes up sometimes. I just adore this card. I love this card so much, I'm thinking about adding Cabal Pit, which is the black equivalent that just disfigures something, which I do think is a lot worse. Like, as much as I like Disfigure, Shock is a much better card. And also, I, I think, think... it's also more difficult in black. Like, in red, it's very easy to just be putting the pressure on your opponent and... Counterpoint, I do have Death Shadow and Scourge of the Skyclaves in this That's cube. That's true. Okay, I'm in. Cabal Pit, maybe. It could, could get there. Anyway, this is a card that uh, it's recommended that I cut. I don't see this card in many cubes, but uh, I'm immediately and thoroughly in love with it and can't wait to keep playing with it. I'm glad you finally put it in this cube because you talked about it for a long, long so time. Long. And you just thought that it would never work. Yeah, it was one of the things I just I, ne- I could never find a, a cut for it or I never felt like I had room. And yeah, I just managed to find room for it. And I should have done it years ago because I, I love it so much. Anthony, I monopolize so much time, but what's on, what's on your list? So, not surprisingly, I have less strong feelings about this list. I'm looking at it, and I don't see the same things that stand out. Like, oh yeah, there's, you know, these cards that just I want to defend. Let me maybe phrase it that way. Is You're very much looking at this list, and your cube is very thoughtfully constructed, and you are very much willing to defend all of those choices and sort of fight against the computer and fight against the, the choices of other designers to say, no, you've picked these here for a reason. When I'm looking at the list... For my main cube, which maybe I should describe, is kind of like, it plays a lot like a master set. It feels a lot like sort of a powered-up, synergistic, limited environment. So it's not strictly a pauper or peasant cube, but it is focused on a lot of things that are like a powerful, uncommon, or uh, okay rare that you would see in a normal limited set. And a lot of these cards I'm looking at, and I'm like, yeah, that's kind of just a regular card. You could absolutely just (laughs) cut that, and you could put in a different, similar creature that has power and toughness or removal spell and keep the the same kind of gameplay uh the gameplay is much less about you know the interactions between two specific cards in ways it is in your cube like oh dress down is really great against the tokens from urza saga or terminus is really good with sensei's divining sensei's divining top that's the one so in a lot of ways i'm looking at these recommendations and just not having the same emotional no feelings no feelings head empty there's also no another really complicated confounding factor, which I, I don't know if I see the same thing for your cube as much, uh, not to, you know, put a, not to be critical of it, but there is an issue with the data on Cube Cobra, which is that this cube has just been cloned a bunch of times. If I go and look at the... Brag. Sick <laughs> brag. Not to brag. If I go and look at I was at looking the, at the suggested ads and I'm like, I know you've had these cards in there for a long time. They're exactly, just from cloned exactly. versions of the cube that people haven't kept up to date with your changes because yeah i mean i've also cloned it to have a backup of the previous year's cubecon featured thing if i ever want to reference that but there's you know clone of regular cube and regular ish cube and normal cube (laughs) that you know over time people have copied the list for whatever reason and i'm looking at the cube map which does different algorithms but i think gets a similar space of trying to figure out like what are the similar cubes that we should then compare this to to try and find these comparisons yeah there's no shared code there but the overall goal is essentially the same right Right. like cubes that should be informing the recommended cuts and additions in the recommender theoretically should be very close in proximity on the cube map so i'm looking at both the suggestions and the additions and there are very few cards that i'm not looking at just saying like oh yeah this is a a suggestion that i add a card that i've cut and this is a suggestion that i cut which is just something i've added recently not necessarily even a card that is from a new set but just recent to the cube so i'm having trouble getting a lot of really interesting conclusions because there is sort of this weird context and i think that context in itself is interesting like all of these kinds of ai tools and digital tools are extremely valuable but often what they're valuable at or what they're doing that's really interesting is showing us where things break down and don't work so well Uh, and i like thinking about that kind of stuff 
I hear you. I still see a couple cards in this list that I do think feel very out of place in this cube. Not in a bad way, but they just feel like a card I would never expect to find here based on how you described your goals and the other cards included. Yeah, so let's talk about those cards. Scrolling through... The one that stands out to me furthest down the list, it's the 32nd card it recommends me cut, is Newscraft Mob. And it totally makes sense that a lot of people will cut this weird zombie. This is a 6 mana for 0-0, zero, zero, but enters the battlefield with 5 counters on it. And whenever a player casts a spell, remove one of those counters and make a 2-2 two, two zombie. I just think this card is very cool and flavorful that it's this horde of zombies that comes out as one creature, and as people are taking actions and disturbing the zombie, it spins off all these other bodies. It's kind of like Grave Titan at home, but I think that it just has a lot of fun play patterns and is definitely at a power level that is much more reasonable. Grave Titan would be completely inappropriate here, but it makes sense to me that a lot of people that were building in similar spaces just wouldn't be interested in something like this. It is a really cool card. I think it's wise as a cube designer to have your expensive spells clear a really high bar for your desired play patterns. You should really love your expensive spells because they have such a big impact on games. And I think this one fits that bill. You really love this card. It's really cool. I think it's an appropriate power level for the regular cube and a decent way to spend six mana in that environment. Yeah, and that is also worth mentioning that Similar to your cube, this is a pretty low-curving environment, so you're not necessarily going to want a 6-drop in most of your decks, and it is going to be a challenge when you draw it in your opening hand. So I think that's maybe another confounding factor why some of the more expensive spells do show up on this list. Did you know there was a promo of a new scrap mob with totally different art? There is, and it's... I don't... Last time I tried to, to get my hands on one, it was like listed as like from unknown mysterious set. I think it was in like bundles from something printed only in a certain location. I should I should look it's at just that. Just an Elder's Room promo. It looks like unique and miscellaneous promos. Unique promo. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very fun set name. I can't decide which art I like better. Compositionally and vibe wise, I really like the original art, but I think the original art does not read as what it is, which the promo art definitely does read as what it is. Yeah. All right. I think, I'm, I think they're, I'm leaning promo art. There, there are a lot of these available. I can get get my hands on one of these. Yeah. No problem. I'm asking. I'm asking the important questions over here. Like, have you considered have the you promo considered with the, the different foil? art? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what it's actually recommending. It's like, hey, you should cut that other one and get this correct art. So then scrolling up the, the list from there, maybe something small that stands out is Wooded Bastion. This is one of the filter lands. These are definitely a little bit of a weird inclusion. I'm still okay with them. I think they're doing what I want, but the filter lands are definitely a little clunky to play with. So totally makes sense to me that a lot of people are not interested in them. Continuing up, we have a bunch of interchangeable guys. Creature that makes a 1-1 counter. Creature that has evasion ability. The next thing that Just stands out... Just some regular dudes. <laughs> the next thing that stands out is Voice of Resurgence. And this also isn't much of a surprise to, to me to see here, because I think it does have some of that... Uh, if not a higher power level, it has a feel of a higher power level, because it's unlike a lot of the cards in this cube, something that has been relevant in constructed formats, and relevant in you know very specific matchups. So I think that it is... An appropriate power level, but is this one of those cards that you think looks a little bit weird to you? Um, it wasn't one of the ones I was thinking about. I, I do think it is something we've talked about about this cube before, which I really like, is that because you're at a lower power level, I think you can make the gold cards a more appropriate power yeah. level, which is to say, in a cube like mine, where I do want to play all these broken cards, frankly, I don't, there aren't enough gold cards that are what I feel is the appropriate amount better than their mono-covered equivalents to like really justify going for. But I think here, Voice of Resurgence is. It's so much better than all of your green and white two drops. Maybe there's a couple green two drops that are comparable, actually, now that I think about it. But it's it's much better in terms of on rate, but not in a way it's inappropriate. It's not taking over a game. It's just, it's a gold card, so you get a little more for your mana. 
Right. All right, continuing up from there, I want to call out something else that I just agree with the recommender here. Uh, Siege Zombie is on this list. This is a 2-mana two 2-2 two, two zombie. Get it out of here. Uh, tap three creatures to have each opponent lose one life. This just isn't really doing anything here, and Yucky. I actually have a stack of new cards sitting on my desk at home and a stack of cuts, and this is already in the stack of cuts, so great job. The computer and the meat computer are in sync on this one. Beep boop. Quick Draw Dagger is also something that I... I'm on the fence of, but I'm leaning towards being pretty happy with this. This is a three mana equipment with flash, and when it enters the battlefield, attach it to a creature so you get that free auto equip, uh, and it gives a creature plus one plus one and first strike for just that turn. So this is kind of like a three mana well, plus combat one plus trick. one is permanent. Just correct. Yeah, that's what you were saying, but the you know language mm-hmm. was un- was unclear. It always gets plus one plus one, and it gets first strike till end of turn. Exactly, and I think this is actually playing out fine like it's not a card that people play a lot but occasionally if people just want an artifact they want you know a combat trick they want a way to boost the power of their creatures for stuff quintessentially a regular card i think that this looks like a c-minus regular card and i that's that's where regular cards are yeah i think that's what it is (laughs) it's fine the next thing that stands out to me, we're up to, to recommendation number 12, is Legion Loyalist. And I think this is in a similar category where this maybe just looks like it's a little bit overpowered, but even though the deck is pretty proactive, uh, there are a lot of pretty fast decks. This isn't like a broken standout aggro card. And it's also here for a pretty specific reason that there are a few more tokens and there probably should be. Uh, so this giving your team the ability to be unblockable from tokens is kind of what it's doing here. And it does its job okay. Interesting. I don't even think it's a even close to a power outlier. I don't think it looks Great. powerful. Okay, perfect. But I had never actually heard your reason for including it, and the idea that it is there because there are so many token decks is a compelling one. All right, this next one is definitely one of the ones that you were going to call it, I think, which is Noyandar. I don't know what to say about Noyandar, except it's awesome. every once in a while somebody looks at it and says, this card looks great, this is what I want to do in this cube. It happens extremely rarely, but that's still all positive experience right it's very cool when it happens this card is definitely dripping with cool is this one of the cards that you were you were thinking of um no not really actually okay yeah i don't know i guess i can see how it might stand out but you know i think like i said this is kind of in the new scrap mob space to me right like it's a five mana spell the five mana spells have to really like i said clear a high bar for personal affection and adherence to the kind of gameplay you want and this does make a bunch of other cards behave in different ways that uh, is the kind of thing I think is the goal of the regular cube. Yeah, and I think that this is a little bit more honestly in line with the original design goals. As we've been playing this cube a bunch, I think things have just gotten You've a You've changed lot... your design goals? Uh, well... You're not allowed to do that. It's it's difficult to describe, but I feel like in a lot of ways the cube has gotten a lot more streamlined. And a lot of the sort of funkier, weirder things that I think are kind of fun have just gotten cut because they ended up being repetitive or you bullied me these (laughs) kinds of things happened and noyandar is still in the space where it's like it's kind of awkward in that it's in blue white which isn't necessarily the color pair that wants to cast a bunch of spells but i think that's actually in some ways a feature that it actually says like hey if you want to build your jeskai deck instead of just your blue red deck you get this different kind of reward and maybe now you actually care about lands or counters it does potentially force you into doing things a little bit differently and the fact that it hasn't been played a bunch is almost more of a motivation for me to keep it because a lot of the things that you know we've talked about casts and feather and things that force you to build your deck in a certain way just ended up being really repetitive because people did them consistently and this still has has mileage yeah i mean i think a five mana gold card is going to be hard to be oppressive because of all the things that have to go right for you to get it into play i certainly have never suggested you cut this card i think noindar is sick great thanks noindar 
When I think of the cute cards that I think you should cut, I think of stuff like Earl of Squirrel. I'll keep blowing you about that, but... Let's check out where that's on the list. I'm surprised it's not higher in this list. I'm so... I mean, that, if anything, speaks to... It's it's not even on the list. It, it doesn't make the, the bottom 100 cards of the cube, <laughs> according to the non-meat computer. Ryan, come back on the show and explain, <laughs> explain your algorithm. <laughs> How does this make any sense? You don't have to explain the algorithm. You have to explain the people. This is all about real human data... And the people have spoken. They all love Earl of Squirrel as much as I do. Mm-hmm. Don't make that face of me. <laughs> no face. I'm just saying it's objectively wrong to cast it and put it in your deck. All right. Let's keep going up to Scrapwork Mutt. Computer, what are you doing? People, what are you doing? Why is this? It's, what? Just, it's just new. It's just new? It's just new. Okay. It'll catch up. Give it a year. Scrapwork Mutt year. will not be on this list is my, is my suspicion. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the same, levy the same criticism at Bushwhack. This, I feel like, has played great. It's like finally getting people to play combat or fight spells in a way that makes a lot of sense and it fixes people's mana a little bit and that's a great regular card i agree i will say that i think you overstate the degree to which people don't play fight spells they play the good ones they've always played the good ones there haven't been any good ones until tail swipe and Domri's ambush has always been good <laughs> and ambush, it's always yeah. been played okay and there's a couple others i can't think of them off the top of my head <laughs> but they're there they're there all right and then i want to go right up to number one which is bring to light which this one really stands out to This me. one stands out as not a regular card. And this is honestly something that I added fairly recently. So it's got a lot of confounding factors that are putting it at the top of this list. I was kind of just trying to experiment a little bit with blue-green. And we've been talking about... We talked a while ago about p- pending updates to this cube that are going to... Curiosity Rethink uh, blue-green a little bit. And I, again, have those cards on my desk. I'm going to do it. Maybe tonight. And yeah, this card's getting cut. Here, the meat computer and the computer computer are in line. Yeah, this one just feels out of place here because this is the kind of card you want when specific cards in your deck are way better than other cards. Right. And that, to me, feels like it's not as much in the spirit of what regular cube is about. Like, yes, you are building a deck that really optimizes cards like Feather or whatever, but even if you did have a four-color deck with Bring to Light and Feather, I'd be hard-pressed to think it would be the correct thing to do to spend five mana to go get Feather, you know? Right. So, I don't know. All in all... I think that this is... <laughs> this sure is a list of cards. <laughs> this sure is a list of cards. Some of the cards of all time. Yeah, I, I don't know how useful this list is to me. In some ways, I feel like the... It sort of depends on what challenge you're, you're facing, what kind of tooling makes sense to you. And I feel like in a lot of cases, this kind of tooling can have sort of the negative effect of feeling like, oh, you're doing something wrong. Like, these are... Like, it's, it's phrased as recommended cuts. Like, this is stuff that is better to remove from your cube. And really what it is recommending is just, these are things that you are doing that is dissimilar from other people that are similar. Which, I think even that small amount of value judgment is potentially not harmful, but it's not positive either. I think that in a lot of ways, the things that stand out to you, like especially in your cube from this recommended cuts, those are really the things that are making your cube unique and are there for reasons that are not just, oh yeah, this is what everybody is doing. And that makes them the really valuable cards. So I'm not really sure what to do with this list. What am I going to do with this list, Andy? I mean, the, what you did with it is you talked about it for a while. If, if anything, it was just a vessel for me to learn why... Legion of Loyalists is in the cube, which I never knew why. And Can it, it's, trample over saplings. It, it, it's good to know why. <laughs> I, I agree that I don't love the way that the recommender is presented to the end user. I mean, from a design perspective, that is a good expressive way to communicate it, that people will understand what it means. 
Yeah, but it's, I I am always the one that wants to design things in the most wishy washy and accurate way, and it, it does make things difficult to understand when it's like, here are the cards that are different within the things that are similar. I mean, it's more work I think to make it compelling, but you definitely can. You could give this a name and a description that would make people interested in it. Ah, names I've, and descriptions, another thing I'm great at doing. You have to you have to build your own idea around it, right? Whereas opposed to just saying recommended, but yeah, like I I think it would be a huge mistake to just follow these and i suspect ryan would agree with us if we were to say like yeah, sure, you're yeah. not actually recommending that you cut all these cards now these cards because that's just a recipe for all the cubes eventually converging or at least converging on their little local maximas right within each of these little kind of categories where all the cubes become the same and that doesn't interest me at all and i kind of thought at some point in this episode we'd just talk about ai in general i thought it would come up naturally it didn't which is fine because it was just gonna be a big rant for by both of us i'm sure but i think one of the risks of this kind of technology or more so the way this kind of technology is often applied is this samifying of everything right. in a way that is actually very extractive of value it, like it, it removes a lot of value from things when you start to just make everything all the same right like yes large language models can write amazingly recognizable and like human sounding things and you can use these image generating libraries to make like really beautiful and complex images and stuff they would never have made the greatest novels in history or the greatest paintings in history because those were inherently something new. They, the they greatest were, novels and paintings of the future might not happen now. <laughs> no, I mean, I think they will is the thing. I don't think this is actually going to... I mean, we can talk about all the problems as it relates to capital and the fact that this is going to like displace That's people's jobs and problem. how it's going to be completely used to... like. The, the thing that's most depressing about it to me is that it's mostly going to be used to make crappy open graph images for auto-generated articles so that your website is full of unique content for SEO, right? That's what all these things are going to be used for, which is which sucks. I don't think it's actually going to detract from art, except that it's going to continue to steal stuff from it. But I don't think it's going to stop artists from making great things. But that's kind of how they buy the recommender, right? Like, the recommender is a cool perspective, a cool lens to look at your cube through, but you are never going to design a bold new cube by going to the recommender. Just by design. That's not what it's for. Right. And that's the same way that no large language model is ever going to write something beautiful and new and no image. They're all just going to follow existing patterns. None of them are really going to break them in compelling right. ways. And I think that is totally useful. I think it's just a matter of the framing and understanding of what the tool is doing. And I think understanding critically that this AI tool and no AI tool really, none of them are truth engines. They are, And they are not generating novel, unique content. They are just suggesting what is most Kind of the opposite of similar. truth engines in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, they're, they're just suggesting what is the most likely thing to fit here in the corpus of, of information that they've digested. And if that's what you're, if that's the problem you're trying to solve, if you're saying, hey, I picked 300 of my favorite cards and I would like the next 60 and I'm struggling to find new cards, perfect. Like, yeah. autocorrect is great when yes. you just, or autocomplete is an awesome tool when you just want to not have to type the whole last word in. So it is great in those situations. But it's not as good as when you sit down and say, computer, make me a cube. Right. Or if, or if, <laughs> you know you're not in the situation of hey i just want to get to the point where i have something that's playable next week at my cube night uh if you're in the situation of i want to do something that is novel and expressive and is my own personal take it's not going to help you with that and i think that just understanding that framing of this is very useful good auto complete auto suggest feature it is not a truth engine and it is not pointing out anything that's correct and you know apply that to all of your experiences of large language models and interpret them in that way and we'll all be a little bit better off i think don't worry the ai trend will be over soon just like the stupid nft trend is long <sighs> over everyone already admits they're completely worthless now that's great yeah 
It'll be over soon. You know what's so... Mm. Which is not to say AI is not going to be a relevant technology in the future. Right now, we're in this bubble where everybody thinks they can solve every problem with AI. And by solve every problem, I right. mean make money. Everyone thinks they can make money with AI right now. And pretty soon, everyone's going to realize that, no, actually, you can't do that. Some I, of you will be able to. I most that, of you can't. I think it is very different from the crypto fad in that... It's actually something. It is something. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas crypto was literally nothing. Man, it's just... It's... Still a fad. It will pass over, and we'll be talking about, I don't know, just augmented reality again. It's all going to yeah. be cyclical, you know? If you want me to do my like, full rant about like this... Like, Second Life was was a thing, and everyone was really into that for a while, and then we got really into VR, and then we got really into whatever, and it's all just going to come back around, and we'll be into the same things all over again. And the constant is cubing with your friends. <laughs> Technology. Yeah. Can't live with it. Can't live without it. And on that bombshell, that's the end of this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Thank you for tuning in. Don't do this often, but you've made it all the way to the end of this extra long episode. So if you are here, you must like this show. Go on Spotify or on iTunes and leave us a little nice review. It helps. It helps us when we're trying to get cool guests to come on that have never heard of us. It helps it seem like it's a real thing instead of just us sitting in my basement talking to microphones. It gives us a little bit of legitimacy. So uh, yeah, go do that if you don't mind. We appreciate it. We read all of them. And uh, yeah, connecting with y'all is why we do this show because we still make no money off of it. I do Yet. still wonder if uh, the fact that we like don't have a Patreon and stuff makes the podcast look less legitimate in some ways. Like it's not not it's like, starting to feel that way a little bit. Not less legitimate, but it's like, why are you doing this? And it's like, no, we this <laughs> is our hobby. <laughs> like it, yeah. very sus. Uh, yeah, and like I feel like it makes a lot more sense for like let's say Wizards of the Coast to give preview cards to podcasts that have a Patreon. It's like, oh, we understand why you're doing this, and we have some confidence you're going to keep doing this because there's like structure here, and we've legitimized it. With capital and when we're just over here like we're just doing this like do we just look like a bunch of dorks i mean we are a bunch of dorks that's at true yeah um <laughs> but do we look like it i don't even would you really want a preview card sure i and and the thing is you can just give me like a, a three mana tutu and i'll be like look how regular this card is this is sick <laughs> like i i think it's a cool thing that wizards does where they ostensibly involve all these different members of the community and like people out there that are making stuff around magic to like get their names out as part of spoiler season i don't think any new people look at like if we had an episode where we spoiled a card 100x people will listen to it until the card was posted to reddit and then no one's ever gonna like actually find the show that way or anything and there's something to be said for the fact that like i love magic as maybe is evidenced by what is now 160 some episodes of this podcast i don't love it as a product and I don't necessarily want to be part of the machine that's just advertising the product constantly. It's re- it's very interesting to me that like I think it's obviously part of the required script when they talk about the preview cards that they say Wizards gave me this free preview I card because everyone says sounds, free it preview sounds card. Sounds gross to be honest. It sounds so gross. Everyone <laughs> says it. I'm sure it must be because of some legal thing yeah. that Wizards is like you have to say it's a free preview like, make because sure this is not sponsored. Make or... sure they know we're not paying you for this right, or whatever. Right. But it's just I was, every time someone says that, it's like, all oh, right, yeah, all these people just do free advertising for you. I mean, we're yeah. already doing free advertising oh, for Wizards of the Coast and for Magic the Gathering by spending hours and hours and hours of our life making this podcast about it. I don't know how interested I am in being super explicit about it. So I don't know. I mean, if you're listening, Wizards, <laughs> and you want to send us a preview card after that, uh, mail at luckypaper.co. That's the end of a podcast. Just this episode, not the whole thing. All of our uh, music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. See, I give them credit every single episode. 
I mean, they do do those things, and yeah. they do a great job. Again, the people that work at Wizards of the Coast are great. The company? It's, it's, the, it's the systems the company. And, She's and, bad. Uh, and forces of... What's the word? Forces capital. of reinforcement, forces of... Capital. I mean, it is. Yeah, it's capitals. Capital. Anyway, we're, we're doing great over here. We're feeling great about technology and society. This podcast is produced by Anthony and I feeling great about technology and society, thinking really hard about magic cards and then speaking to microphones about it. Thanks, Anthony. Aaron's going to be furious you didn't call me... Uh, what was it? <laughs> Aaron, it's coming on the next one, I promise. <laughs> the next episode. I do have it on my list of notes here, but I... I thought we'd talk more about AI up front, so I tried to give you a topical name.